Dan, for the first time in a while, I lost sleep last night. Oh, no. Now what? No, <laughs> I lost sleep because I'm excited about, oh, not about what we're doing right now. <laughs> not God. worried, huh? That's good. That's good. Yeah, if only our listeners knew exactly what is in store for them for this episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited as well. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah. So everyone out there, uh, thank you for tuning in to the Woodhounds podcast. And today, Dan and I have a very special guest. And his name is uh, Professor John Pastor. He is a professor emeritus of Minnesota, University of Minnesota Duluth. And he is the author of a book that I had stumbled across and I read and just thoroughly enjoyed. And we entered, uh, asked him to come on for the podcast and he graciously accepted. Uh, the name of the book is White Pine, The Natural and Human History of a Foundational American Tree. John, how are you doing? Good. How are you guys? Doing great. Well, I'm 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 a little uh this is that time of the year and you know about this from the white pine. I'm a little uh, annoyed with the white pine right now because my oh, deck is <laughs> my deck is yellow, everything yeah. is yellow. <laughs> so yep. other yep. than that, I'm doing great. <laughs> well, I'm I'm starting to sniffle because of the white pine pollen coming right from the tree outside this window right over here <laughs> oh wow i have two white pines in my front yard and uh i always knew that they were white pines because i just did the research and you know so white pines when you think of pine trees there's like the spruce with those little jabby needles uh and then the white pine has what do you call them john is it like a fan they're like five little floppy fingers that come off of uh each leaf yeah they're they're um five needles that are joined at the base by a little bundle of tissue that then attaches to the tw the twig and those five needles plus that bundle of tissue together it's called the fascicle oh wow and um that is typical of all of the other kinds of white pines which is sort of a big branch of the pine genus pine family and um, things like western white pine and white bark pine are related to eastern white pine which is what this book is about and the the characteristic of all of these white pines is that they have five needles joined at their base and that's what attaches them to the twig all right so uh john i don't want to offend you at the very beginning but hear me out on this <laughs> When I, okay. and Dan and I, Dan and I are firewooders, and when we when we yeah. think of trees, you know, we have a bias to the hardwoods. Right. And it, it was just the other day I was watching a YouTube video, and it was of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, induction ceremony, and they had this set with like Eric Clapton and Tom Petty and uh, George Harrison's son, and that uh, Jeff Lynne from ELO, and they were playing uh, a a Beatles tune. Well, what do you know? Uh, Prince, uh, who lives up your way, well, he's deceased. Oh, you he, yeah. yeah, he came out on stage and he just threw down one of the most epic guitar solos I have ever heard in my life. And mm -hmm. I left that video thinking I felt just 
ignorant that I never realized that Prince was such an amazing guitarist. Yeah. And that was the same feeling that I came away from reading your book about the white pine. <laughs> it never no, nobody long. nobody has ever compared me to Prince before. <laughs> what, what an honor. What an honor. Yeah, well, it could be the purple suit that you're wearing right now. I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm serious. When I think of uh, Dan, serious, when you think of trees, you know, when if you named off five trees, would you name anything of a softwood? Um, possibly only because of where I'm from and where I live right now. But yeah, generally for firewood, you think of, you know, your oaks, your maple, your ash, your cherry. But like I said, I'm from, or I live in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and mm -hmm. this city was built because of the white pine. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, with firewood, I've, I've got four cords of oak maple and birch stacked outside and about a half cord in our basement right now so i i agree you don't want to burn any conifer for firewood so uh, yeah you know oak maple and birch is what we burn up here yeah well that and that's what i was thinking you know when i think of trees and it's not just a firewood bias and guys uh, everyone out there listening this is not going to be just about firewood here because of this history lesson that awaits you and the role that the white pine played and not only <laughs> the the motivation behind the rebellion and the revolution and then just right. the, the building this this nation starts with white and continues to be with white pine but when i think of trees i think of oaks you know, the, the USS Constitution with the oak timbers, old iron sides. I think of the elm tree, the liberty tree. I think of the maple. And, it, you know, our, our neighbors to the north with the maple leaf on their flag. John, it just, I was just amazed at the role that the white pine has played in the formation of our country. It's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's, white pine is the... Um kind of what we call the in ecology the foundational um, species of the north woods and the north woods is sort of that band of forest that's a mixture of pines and balsam fir and spruce and maples some birches that run from maine maybe even um, nova scotia all the way west into through new york particularly in the adirondacks maybe coming down into Northern Pennsylvania a little bit, um, and then up through Michigan, both the lower and upper peninsula, Wisconsin, uh, where Dan is, is kind of the Southern edge of the Northwoods. You go much South of you, Dan, and you're into more pure hardwoods. Yep. And then up into Northeastern Minnesota. And this is about where it ends because the prairie is about three hours drive west of here. Um, and then you, you get into Western Minnesota and the Dakotas and you're in ranch country out there. So when you think of the North Woods, you think of um, big pines and maples and balsam fir. So it's sort of the, the woods of where you could get maple syrup and Christmas trees and white pine lumber. That's <laughs> kind of what you, yeah. what you think of. Yep. And, and, but white pine is the tree 
that kind of structures this whole ecosystem. That's what we mean by a foundational tree. It's the largest tree by far. When you look out, if you get on a hill and look out over the north woods here out, outside of Duluth where I am, the white pines are towering over anything else, anything else. But it's really nice to do this in the fall because then you see all the orange and red maples and stuff and you see these green pines. But because they're so big, they control a lot of the energy input into the into the forest through photosynthesis, through its huge, enormous crowns. So they're pulling energy in. And then that energy, when the leaves fall off, the needles fall off uh, after they're two or three years old, goes into the soil and with its nutrients and it's recycled, it becomes available to the other trees. The white pine provides habitat. Uh, up here, if you want to find a bald eagle's nest, inevitably it's in a white pine tree because those nests weigh, because they're made of big sticks and stuff, ospreys the same way. Those nests weigh 500 pounds or more. Oh, wow. And so you need these huge spreading branches that uh, high up that the white pines provide for eagles and ospreys bears um in the fall will tear open the cones for uh the seeds red squirrels will do the same they're um they're the host tree for a kind of butterfly called the pine elfin butterfly and on and on and on so every species in the north woods somehow is connected in some way to white pine that's why we think of it as the foundation of the north woods Excellent. Excellent. And then, Dan, you and I were talking about this before, and you had mentioned about some, your area it was real big with sawmills and, um, right. yep. uh, yeah. What, what were you, what is your experience with that, Dan? Yeah. And I, I never really thought of the, the white pine, like you had mentioned about the fu fundamental or the foundation of the forest. Like growing up here you've always heard of the foundation of like the, what built the west like what built the country was the white pine and all right. the white pine coming down through the chippewa and eau claire rivers right. and then heading out like eau claire i think at one time had i don't even know how many sawmills and that's that's what oh, built yeah. the city was the sawmill business of sawing up white pines yep yep warehouser actually started in the chippewa valley that's where Frederick Warehouser, the patriarch, started. And then after they got through all the white pine, they said, okay, we're going out west because they've got Douglas fir out there. Yeah, and so yeah. Warehouser became a Western company. But Warehouser, uh, the company got its start in the Chippewa Valley. And much of that lumber got sent down to St. Louis. So the lumber that built St. Louis, the city, came from your part of the woods the north there. woods yep yeah yeah the north woods so how many board feet do you think came out of the chippewa valley of white pine over the years oh no idea <laughs> let's see i've got it written here I, I wrote down some notes here um 46 billion board feet Ooh. Came out <laughs> just out of the chippewa and eau claire river valleys how, wow. Just for comparison, Maine is often thought of, and it, it once was, the, the real stronghold of white pine. That's where most of the white pine came during colonial times. 
out of Maine, all of Maine, only about five to seven billion board feet of white pine came out of Maine. So we're talking about seven times as much white pine was harvested from the Chippewa River Valley and Eau Claire River Valleys as was harvested in the entire state of Maine. Wow. And that's amazing. So, yeah, it's yeah. it's incredible. And then Stillwater, it, which is a, another, used to be a big sawmill town, a little south of you on the St. Croix River in Minnesota. Um, Stillwater milled about 7 billion board feet, just that one town, as Ooh. in the entire state of Maine. So Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota were the real, um, the, this was the cream of the cream for yeah. white pine up here. Yeah. What is it about the white pine that made it more desirable um, of, above all the other softwoods? Well, it's, it's large. It's the largest of all of them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, during when the, the loggers were, and lumberjacks were first coming through here, trees that were four foot in diameter and 140 feet tall were, you know, not, not uh, the most abundant size. Most trees were maybe two to three feet in diameter, but it was not uncommon to find trees that big. And you could still find trees that big. Uh, yeah. here in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and the upper peninsula of Michigan. So just the size of it was huge. You could you could mill these big planks out of it in beams for barns and bridges. Much of the bridges that was done in New England were white pine, some oak timber, but white pine. It was light, so it would float. And that's why the, you could have white pine sent to the mills by river drives. If you tried to do sugar maple or oak, which are much heavier by a river drive, they, they'd they float, but they wouldn't float like a white pine. They'd get be hung up. Yep. And it'd be tough. The other thing is that white pine, because of the resins in it, is flexible. And in the colonial era in New England, the white pine was mostly exported. You know, it was used to build barns and homes and bridges and so forth. But much of the really big trees were exported to other countries for ships' masts. So a single mast uh, for the the you know top of the line warships um, <clears throat> that Nelson and the rest of them sailed on. Those masts had to be 40 inches in diameter. And for the rule was in shipbuilding, for every inch in diameter, you needed a yard of length. So 40 oh. inches in diameter and 40 yards, 120 feet tall. That's what you needed for a mast. And that was after the bark was taken off. And the bark could be a couple inches thick. So <laughs> yeah. in order to get a mast like that, and usually they were hewed down into an octagon because the octagon is actually a stronger shape than a circle. And so you needed a tree that was at least 45 inches in diameter for those kinds of ships. Ooh. But the flexibility of the, the mass was important because in strong winds or when the ships were making a, uh, a sharp turn to bring their guns to bear on, on their enemy, there was a lot of force exerted against those sails and the sails alone weighed several tons altogether to keep the sails up. 
there was a lot of force exerted against the mast. And the mast had to be flexible to bend a little bit with that force and then to spring back to get that force to move the ship in the yep. right way. So large size, um, clear, uh, these big trees are clear of knots uh, for the most part because it, it self prunes its lower branches. Um, light and flexible wood and strong wood was the really desirable uh, characteristic of white pine that no other tree really had. It had all of those characteristics. Yeah. Yeah. John, I, you told a very interesting story in your book about, you had already mentioned the warship. So maybe we're jumping ahead here a little bit because I wanted to also hear about um, when Europeans first came to the Americas. Uh, I'm just wondering what was going through their heads when they saw the white pine. And you know, did they have anything similar like that in Europe? But mm -hmm. I, you had told the story of how uh, the King of England fell in love with the white pine and its role in these masts for their warships. And one of the untold or one of the very, uh, one of the not well publicized realities of the revolution was uh, Cornwallis's surrender <laughs> largely <laughs> was determined because of the white pine. Can you tell that story? Sure. Well, um, let me back up before we get to Corn Cornwallis a little bit. Um, the reason why the king wanted white pine was the British Navy was actually getting most of its pine for its ships from the Baltic states. And this kind of pine is what we call Scots pine. But if you go see that Scots pine tree in Scotland, it's a pretty ratty tree the way it grows there. The really nice trees were from the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. And they were comparable to our white pine, but they were closer to get. The British Navy would just, you know, sail up the Baltic and get the trees and bring them back. Um, so they preferred those um, that species instead of white pine. And the colonists were making money by selling white pine to other countries that were farther away, like France and Spain and so forth, and not actually at first to Britain. Well, Britain and France and Spain were in <clears throat> one of their wars together, and the, the French and the Spanish Navy blockaded the Skagerrak, which is the entrance into the Baltic Sea. So the British could no longer get the pines from Estonia. And so the king said, or the, the admiral said to the king, well, you know, we've got these white pines over in New England. We'll just take those. And the king said, fine, they're mine. I need them for my ships. <laughs> so the king direct sent over a bunch of surveyors and told them that any tree bigger than 24 inches in diameter, you put an arrow on that tree with your hatchet. So it's three slashes that look like an arrow. And that tree is mine. It's not the colonist tree anymore. Well, the colonists were making a lot of money <clears throat> off of these big trees. One of those trees for mass, they could sell for what in today's dollars is $16,000 for one tree. Wow. Just, it, they were making a lot of money off of this. And so the king, <clears throat> these are called the king's pine laws or the broad arrow laws. Um, the, the king, it, this didn't sit too well with the colonists. 
And so they started in New England revolting against this. And they would tar and feather the surveyors when they came into town and so forth. And <laughs> literally, literally. But this led in 1772 to a White Pine riot in New Hampshire, where the surveyors were tarred and feathered and run out of town. And the colonists said, no more. The, the, these trees are ours. They're not yours. Three years later is Bunker Hill. And the flag that the uh, New England colonists uh, raised over Bunker Hill had a white pine on it. It's, it's called at that time the flag of New England. <clears throat> and so there was a blockade of uh, British ships coming into Boston Harbor, which or the harbors of Maine, where they would get the white pine. So British no longer had access to white pine. They didn't have access to the Scots pine anymore. And they were sort of splicing little trees together to make a mass. And those masts were, as you can imagine, were not as strong or flexible or anything. They, they just were not good. And the masts were breaking. <clears throat> when the British entered, <clears throat> when we started the revolution, the British, these masts, even with the big white pines, had to be replaced every three to five years on the ship just for wear and tear. They sure. only had 170 of these masts in reserve in their um, in their yards because they thought, oh, you know, this war is not going to last too long. How many times have you heard that about every war <laughs> that's been started? Right? Yeah. Well, this war is not going to last too long. We'll, we'll, you know, kick these colonists in the teeth and we'll get back. We'll get our pines back. Well, they didn't. The war lasted. They ran out of the storehouse of white pine mass they had. They had to cobble together these crappier masts. And um, eventually these masts were breaking in the wind or in battle. They they just couldn't do it. And the French Navy by this time, towards the end of the war, um, was on our side. So we made a treaty with France and Lafayette was coming over. And the French Navy was coming over towards the end of the war <clears throat> to assist us. And Washington by this time had the British Army under General Cornwallis sort of blockaded in uh, Yorktown, the harbor of Yorktown in Virginia. And so the king sent his fleet over to rescue Cornwallis to fight another day. But on the way, the British fleet um, ran into a big windstorm and all the masts of the ships were broken. In the meantime, the French, with better masts and maybe better navigation, sailed south of that storm got to Yorktown, um, and so Cornwallis was pinched in between Washington's army on the land and um, the French Navy to sea, and Cornwallis said, well, that's the end of it. I surrender. That's and amazing. That, <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was – yeah, it, the, the, uh, uh, the, the role of white pine in the revolution, and in particular in the American – Maritimes, because afterwards, after the revolution, now we had these pines and they were ours. And that was the reason why we could develop the fast clipper ships that would go to China for tea and around the world. Still, the the, the record for going from Boston to China and back is still held by a clipper ship. There's no ship today that could do it as fast as the clipper ships with the white pine masts. No wow. kidding. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
So it, it's the American, the New England maritime industry, the clipper ships, the whalers, all of those uh, ships had white pine masts. Yeah, that is that is just amazing. And then, like you know, I didn't know any of that history. Like I said, the history that I've always heard with the white pine is then what would be building out, like you had mentioned, you know, from St. Louis building all the homesteads, all everything was built off of right. the white pine. And 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 just a quick note back to like you had mentioned the weight. Uh, one of the one of my favorite like old history photos. There's a uh, a sleigh with logs of white pine that probably goes up 25, 30 feet. Yeah. And it's yeah. like two horses are pulling that load of logs. <laughs> well, yeah. And those, those photos were actually, those two horses never pulled that load of logs. I guarantee it. <laughs> um, yeah. Those photos were often made um, as recruiting tools because they would take those photos to Scandinavia. Oh. And say to the Swedish and Norwegian loggers, look at the pines you could cut if you came to America and worked for us. Wow. Oh, and so, so they would they were staged. So they, they would were, make these Yeah, these they big, were uh, editing back then even. Yeah, wow. these big sleds of, of uh big logs and put a couple horses or oxen in front of it. <laughs> and you think that, wow, look at that. But no, they, they never pulled that much. Those yeah. logs were real though. They, when you see the size of those logs, that's what they were yeah. getting. It's pretty amazing. But that's a load amazing. like that was never pulled. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, John, we now know that um, the, the white pine played a large role in construction and, and everything and anything. Uh, but then the white pine became a tree at risk. Is that fair to say? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would say that, you know, better than 80% of the original white pine was cut, um, even better than 95% in most cases. And about the middle of the 1800s, people started to realize that um, something was wrong here. So what they were doing back then was not what we would consider today forestry or forest management or for woodland management. They were just, they were cutting and cut and run was the term. So cut and keep going. There's plenty of pine here. We're never going to run out of it. And uh, why bother replanting or anything else? But by the time you get to Wisconsin, Western Wisconsin and Minnesota, the prairie is on the horizon there. And people start thinking, well, wait a second here. What's going on? But the other thing that was happening, particularly in the uh, uh, New England and New York State was once you cut all the white pine, the soil started eroding. And so the watersheds were really being drastically affected. Now, at the same time, they needed to cut the pine to have farms and pastures for sheep and cattle and so forth. But we didn't really realize at the time how to put all this stuff together and harvest and uh, farm without harming the land. And so there was a, uh, a guy in, from, in Vermont named George Perkins Marsh who started putting all this together and saying, you know, what's happening here is the same thing that happened in Europe um, back in the Middle Ages. And they, don't, they used to have big forests in Europe. They don't anymore. And we're heading that way. 
uh, if we don't do something about it. And so George Perkins Marsh and other people started um, advocating for restoration of the forest, particularly of white pine, uh, particularly in New England, or the preservation of what was left. And the Adirondack Park in upstate New York, um, the largest wilderness area east of the Mississippi, the second largest is here in northern Minnesota, the Boundary Waters. But the Adirondack Park was originally established to protect the upper part of the watershed of the Hudson River, which was the water supply and still is for New York City. Mm. So we New York City didn't want muddy water. They wanted a, a good supply, steady supply of fresh water. And in order to do that, the Adirondack Forest had to be kept intact in order to do that. So the 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 lack of white pine or what happened to the landscape after the white pine was cut and taken off it and there was no forest left on the land made people start to think about the connection between the forest and the flow of water and particularly the water that they needed in the cities. So the ironic thing is they needed the white pine to build the cities, but they also needed the water <laughs> to sustain the cities. Yep. And so little by little, people start thinking, well, you know, we can't have one without the other in the North Woods here. We've got to have some of both, but we also want to harvest the pine too. We, we don't want to give that up necessarily. And so this was the start of forestry in America to figure out how to restore white pine to the forest, how to manage white pine so you could get a supply of timber, but still maintain an intact forest that would um, protect the watershed as well as protect wildlife habitat and everything else that we started to realize came from the woods, but um, was not infinite supply. So again, yep. white pine was the trigger to basically start thinking about conservation and scientific forestry in the United States. Wow. Huh. Yeah. That's, and is that, is that kind of like then what the inspiration was for you to, to write this book or like, how, how did that all come about with, you know, picking the white pine as a topic for, for a book? Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, I had written uh, almost all of my research has been done in the North Woods on various things. Um, and white pine to me is, when I think of a forest, if you say the word forest to me, it's a white pine forest with maple understory, particularly in the fall and the maples are all orange and red. So this is without a doubt my favorite tree. And I had written a previous book with the publisher of this book, Island Press, about um, essays about the, some about my research, but the different species that make up the North Woods all together. And one of the species that I wanted to write about was white pine, but I realized that there was, it was so important that it couldn't be just one essay or even a section of the book, it deserved a book by itself. So when I finished the previous book called What Should a Clever Moose Eat? Um, which has been a problem in that I've studied in my own research. My editor said, well, what's your next book that you want to write? And I said, well, you know, I, I 
White Pine is sort of mentioned in this first book, but I think White Pine needs a book by itself. And I love it. And everybody who goes up to one of these big white pine trees, they they put their hand on the tree and they look up and they smile. And everybody loves white pine. So I think I should write a book about white pine. And it won't be about just the ecology of white pine or the natural history of white pine. I think it, it was so important in the development of so many things in this country that I want to try to, to interweave natural history and the history of this country, the cultural yeah. history of the Northwoods together in this book. And I remember my editor said, how are you going to do that? And I said, I don't know. I need to th think about this <laughs> a little bit. And But I think that's the way to do it. And so we'll work it out. And we went through um, three or four different drafts of proposals and sample writing and everything else. And after about a year, she said, okay, I think we're on the right track now. Okay, here's your contract. Go to it. And then I spent two years um, sitting in this room with all of these books behind me, um, <laughs> read, reading and thinking about white pine and going for walks in the woods uh, through white pine forest just to get a sense of white pine and just that I could sort of hopefully in my writing, I, I get into this book, what it's like to walk through these woods and think about the loggers and lumberjacks and conservation, the civilian conservation corps that my uncles were in, maybe some of your older relatives were in, and just sure. everything about white pine and what it meant for those of us who live up here. That's awesome. So everyone, I want to remind you that we are sitting here with Professor John Pastor. He is Professor Emeritus from the University of Minnesota Duluth and the author of White Pine, the Natural and Human History of a Foundational American Tree. And John, I picked up right away in the writing of your book. Um, you know, you start with your, you talk about Pangea and prehistoric, uh, you know, dinosaurs yeah. and th this whole evolution to ancient uh, Native Americans. And, uh, and you trace the, the path that white pine played all the way through the formation of the United States to its near, um, not extinction, but it was, it got pretty thin there. And now it's starting to be, now that we've recognized um, the, the, the benefits of reforestation, white pine is coming back to a, a more, um, uh, strong footing, right. but on your, through your research though, what is, is white pine a, is it a tree that can live in like varied climates? Has it been taken to other parts of the world? Uh, has, has it taken a hold anywhere else other than here in North America? Well, the seedlings <clears throat> were taken back in the 1700s, early 1800s to um, England and Germany because they recognized the, the value of it. And particularly German foresters wanted to grow their own white pine. But it never really took off anywhere else. This is really the stronghold of, mm -hmm. um, of uh, these kinds of pines. There is a closely related pine in um, northeast China and Korea called the Korean pine. And when you, I've been there and you walk 
<clears throat> you walk through a Korean pine forest and there are maples and kind of something like a northern red oak in those forests. I, I tell you, it's hard put to tell for me to tell whether I'm in northeast China or I'm in Minnesota. They're very, no very kidding. similar forests. Wow. But it's not the same species. It's <clears throat> it's within that white pine branch of the pine family, but it's uh, five needles and so forth. Mm -hmm. But um, the white pine never really took off anywhere else. Hmm. Is there professional management of white pine here in North America with reforestation where we've applied our scientific knowledge to that's ideal conditions for it to grow back or do we just plant yeah. seedlings and let them go well for a while we just planted seedlings and let them go um one of the problems with that though was blister rust and blister rust is this ties back to the white pines in germany after the white pine was logged off um, and we started thinking, well, we've got to get white pine back. And really what killed a, a lot of the white pine seedlings that were left were the fires that went through the logging debris, the logging slash. So mm. there weren't any seedlings coming up anywhere very much. And we weren't thinking about nurseries back then, but the Germans foresters were had white pine in their nurseries all over the place, and they were getting ready to outplant them. So we went to Germany and bought seedlings and brought them back here and all of those seedlings came back came into this country with blister rust on them so that's how the blister rust was introduced into this country and the first act quarantining importation of any species outside this country which we're dealing a lot now with things like zebra mussels and so forth and so on was the white uh the plant quarantine act which forbid the importation of white pine seedlings from um, Germany. Oh, wow. So then we oh. had to, so the, the men in the CCC, uh, a lot of their work, like my uncles always talked about, it was pulling up gooseberries, which were the alternate hosts <laughs> that would spread the uh, blister rust. But at the same time, we started our own nurseries here, gathering white pine seedlings and growing seedlings in nurseries for outplanting. But, you know, that's expensive. And, you know, it, if you're in the South and you could grow a big loblolly pine in 25, 30 years and then cut it down and sell it um, for yellow pine lumber, um, you could pay back the cost of seedlings. For um, the CCCs planted a lot of the seedlings, particularly of red pine, which is not susceptible to blister rust, all through here. But then those plantations um, had to be thinned and so forth. And it was planted before World War II. After World War II, men like my dad and uncles and stuff, they came back. They didn't want to go back and thin the woods. They wanted to build their own homes. And yeah. so those... Those CCC plantations are 100 years old now, but the growth of those trees has kind of stagnated because they need yeah. to be thin. Yeah. So what we've been thinking of lately is where we still have some white pine left, how do we manage the forest knowing what we now know about the ecology of the forest and the role of fires in actually maintaining white pine? And how can we mimic fires 
through harvesting in the way that the fires kind of worked. But instead of burning up the timber, we take it off. And so there's a movement now um, really um, sort of led by foresters, both in Maine and also here in northern Minnesota, some working for the Forest Service and some private foresters. One that I've been working with a lot is a guy named John Ryla, who has the oldest continuous sawmill in operation in Minnesota. His land go and sawmill go back five generations. And oh, wow. he's got 25,000 acres in one chunk and other thousands acres in smaller chunks. Um, this big chunk is called the Wolf Lake Tract. And he's his dad started thinking about restoring the white pine. And he's working a lot on restoring white pine in this forest. But also, um, he also manages for 23 other species that live with white pine, like sugar maple and northern red oak, yellow birch, basswood, and so forth, um, for his largely for his sawmill, for high-quality lumber. So I don't think any of his lumber go or any of his uh, trees go for firewood, except maybe some of the scrappy stuff. <laughs> so right. it wouldn't help you guys if you were up here. But he yeah. has beautiful lumber. You go into his warehouse, and it's like this huge library of gorgeous, gorgeous lumber that my dad, who was a carpenter, would just drool over of pine, which are, that's their flagship species, but also uh, maple, both red and sugar maple and uh, northern red oak and so forth and so on. So the idea that what John is doing and the Forest Service in the Chippewa National Forest, where his land is located sort of adjacent to the Chippewa National Forest. So the foresters there and, and the experiment, Forest Service experiment station there, are thinking about how to manage the white pine forest, not just for pure white pine, but for all the species together of which white pine, like we started talking about, is the foundation species. Yeah, that's so, the foundational American tree. I love it. Right. Yeah. So how do you manage the forest to open it up so that the white pine seedlings get enough light so that they could grow and also, which will require taking out some of the maple and other species at the same time, but it costs money to harvest. And so that maple and everything else, there has to be a market for that. Mm -hmm. And here, the, one of the really interesting things here is, a lot, you know, a lot of my friends are, um, uh, you know, environmentalists and belong to environmental groups like the Sierra Club and so forth. As And I'm sympathetic to a lot of what they're doing. As a professor who is a state employee, I never belonged to any of those advocacy groups because I just felt I was a public servant and I, I shouldn't be, I should be using my science to help everybody, not advocating for one sure. policy or another. Yeah. I think that's but, well said. But I, you know, they have a point. They, they have a point. But, so they, the big thing now is we should manage for a biodiversity, which is a, what they're talking about is a combination of all species, not just one species, which I agree with. And actually, John Ryla, the sawmill owner, would agree with. And he'd say, well, that's what I'm doing. What 
the concert, the uh, environmental groups don't always realize, and what I keep reminding my friends, is that nobody is going to pay for managing for biodiversity. That's not a marketable thing. Yeah. You ha if you're going to manage a forest, you got to pay. You got to pay for the logger salary, the, the, the trucks, everything else. You, you got management costs money. And when you manage a forest, the profit on those for those trees is going to be delayed. You yeah. know, several yep. decades until the trees get big enough. Yep. So you're sure. running you're running a risk of putting money in now and not recruiting recouping the profit um, until decades from now. So how are you going to manage for biodiversity and pay for it? The only way to do it is with sound forestry, like John Ryla and the Forest Service and the Chippewa National Forest and other foresters in New England and other uh, sawmill owners are now trying to do. That's what pays for managing for biodiversity. So sound forest management makes money, it gives people jobs, and it also um, maintains the diversity of species in the forest. Yeah, interesting. That was here in Ohio, we are known as the beach maple belt. Right. And from my understanding, the beach and the maple grew together in harmony. And mm -hmm. but what they did, they choked out the rest, the, the canopy. So nothing else was allowed to grow. Right. Right. It seems like around here, a lot of our pine trees were planted by the state. They used them along the highways for snow mm -hmm. fences. Uh, but now I'm starting to see a lot of them are all dying. What is the yeah. what is what's killing these pine trees now? And I know out west they have like the the beetle kill, where right. it does provide some beautiful lumber with that bluish hue that goes through it. Yeah. But what is the yeah. big threat to our pines right now in the United States? Well, I think the big threat, um, the blisterus is still a threat here. Um, although we have some blisterus resistant. Uh, varieties. And also, um, some trees naturally do survive blister rust, and those are the trees that are making the seeds for the next generation, uh, which is why John Ryla wants to preserve those trees, because they've survived all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think what's, um, I'm not sure exactly what's going on down there. There is a, uh, uh, the pine trees die from the top down. There's also a tip weevil that um, gets at the uh, the topmost leader shoot of the pine trees and can start killing it, working its way down. But a lot of what's happening maybe, and I don't know this for sure, but since you're at the southern edge of the range of white pine, one of the things I would suspect is the warmer uh, hotter summers down there yeah. that's coming about because of climate change. And I don't think climate change is going to cause the white pine to go extinct. But what it might do is make the range shift further northward and maybe further eastward out of western Minnesota to eastern Minnesota and western Wisconsin. <clears throat> so again, without seeing the trees, I, I can't say for sure. But uh, 
I think we have to start suspecting the warmer summers and the warmer winters that we are having sure. for killing these trees. So where where uh, where did you grow up then, and and where did you are you always been in the Northwoods here? Well, I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else. I've lived here about um, forty or fifty years now since um, uh, I went to forestry school in Wisconsin. I grew up though in northern New Jersey, which is again the southern edge of the range of the North Woods, and oh, okay. my introduction to white pine was the the pines in the forest that I would walk through as a kid, but also my dad. My dad was a carpenter and cabinet maker, and he loved working with white pine. And oh, wow. so his his shop was just, you know, the smell of white pine, that great resinous smell. And even my dad, you know, he smelled like white pine his whole life. <laughs> Sitting in church, he would smell like white pine, you know. And uh, so my, my dad, all of our, our house was built of white pine. It was paneled in white pine the furniture in the house. My my dad, um, the house was built on his family's farm. When he and his brothers came back from World War II, they didn't want to farm. They just split up the farm into different lots. My dad died in a white pine bed that he built in a, house, in a room paneled with white pine in a house built of white pine um, two by fours on land that he used to farm. That's awesome. So that's what a story. Quite, yeah. <laughs> you don't hear that too much of anybody anymore. So yeah, that was my then, introduction to white pine was white pine sawdust and furniture. I'll bet when you get a whiff of pine, like at a, at Lowe's or home Depot, it probably takes your back. You're just that little boy again oh, yeah. growing up. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Amazing. Absolutely. We talk about that in firewood about how just smelling wood, yep. you know, the smoke or something just takes you back. What a, what a great memory. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And my, well, my, de- my parents heated with wood and my brother and I have um, great memories of cutting firewood and splitting it with my dad. And when my dad got up in age, um, you know, one year my dad brought him, my brother brought him a, a wood splitter, little one, and we started <laughs> splitting that way. And then after a while, we we thought it was a little too dangerous for my dad to be operating. <clears throat> so we we would take a big log and put it down, and we'd say, "Dad, sit here and give us advice on splitting <laughs> these logs." And we just had Dad sitting there and giving us advice on what to do. It's right. it's a, a great memory. That's great. Well, um, I know that, uh, uh, John, you have an engagement that you must attend. And we didn't want to keep you here all day because I think we uh, could. <laughs> uh, I'd, I, I'd still, yeah, I'd still like to, uh, maybe we can uh, invite you back in a future date. Um, sure. Uh, yeah, if you ever, anything interesting comes about or you write another book or um, involved in another paper, uh, give us a call. Okay, thank you. Yeah. But, John, we can't just let you go. No, we cannot because we have a tradition here when we have a guest on the Woodhounds podcast that we need to Woodhound them with some random questions that just the first thing that comes to your mind, you answer with. So you, okay. we're not, you, you're not going to be prepared for some of these, but whatever comes to your, into your mind first, you just 
rattle off the answer. Rapid fire. That's right. right. And you have to, and if you don't beat the clock, then you will face a serious Woodhound penalty. <laughs> oh. oh, no. Whatever that is, we don't know yet, but whatever. So, so are you ready? All right. Dan, are you going to start ready. the clock? Dan, you start the clock and ask the first question. I've got the clock going, and here we go. What car did you take your driver's test in? A International Harvester Scout. What is your favorite chainsaw? Husqvarna. Oh, what is your favorite fast food restaurant? I don't eat fast food. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we got to throw him off the show, Dan. Come on. (laughs) We got rules on this show here. Okay, what is, where is your dream vacation? Northern Minnesota, where I live now. Love it. Do you believe in UFOs? No. (laughs) What is your favorite rock band? Uh, I don't usually listen to rock music, but I would have to say the band. Yeah. It's going way back, but the band. This next one, I think we know the answer to already, but what is your favorite firewood species? Oak. Northern red oak. (laughs) Yes. Okay, would you rather go to a truck pool or a symphony orchestra? Oh, sorry, guys, symphony orchestra. Uh, Who is your favorite historical figure? Ooh, that's hard. Um, I'll I'll say this might sound corny, but I'll say Gifford Pinchot, the forester who founded the U.S. Forest Service. He was an amazing guy. I thought I was going to hear Thoreau. Okay. I I find Thoreau a little hard to read sometimes. I concur. <laughs> okay, last question. What is your favorite sports team? Uh, Minnesota Twins. Oh, my. All right. There you go. You have now officially John, been Woodhounded on the Woodhounds John, podcast. <laughs> John got through that pretty good. Yeah. Uh, he Thank got you through that a little bit Thank more you. efficiently than others, for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, John, I hate to say that we have to say goodbye, but we have to say goodbye. But I just uh, had a blast uh, meeting you, getting to know you, and um, I really enjoyed reading your book. Uh, White Pine, The Natural and Human History of a Foundational American Tree. Mr. John Pastor. Thank you. Yes, John. It was was great, great talking to you. Great hearing about, you know, your, the, the pine and all the history behind it and really enjoyed uh, sitting here and chatting. So you come back on. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot too. So I want to thank Professor John Pastor for sitting with us today, and uh, I want to thank everyone for tuning in and listening to the Woodhounds podcast. The number one firewood podcast in the world. In the world. And I want to tell everyone to stay safe and be cool. And John, have a great day.